invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, we'll study verses 19 through 23. We'll read from verse 18 through 23, but our sermon text is 19 through 23. Let me remind you that the Apostle Paul is writing to a diverse church in Rome, a church that has had its divisions, a church that is made up of some Gentile believers and some converted Jewish believers. And the Apostle has given his attention specifically to the topic of the electing grace of God. This is significant in the life of a diverse church like this because a portion of the church have grown up in Israelite households. They are the people of promise. They are the people who had the prophets. The people to whom the Messiah is said to have come from, and indeed from whom the Lord Jesus Christ is descended. And the question looms over the church. Are we the chosen of God? Or is ethnic Israel? It is the question of election, and the Apostle Paul has given his attention over to it so that the church would have clarity and understanding and assurance in Jesus Christ rather than simply in flesh and blood. I do also want to say these are very clear verses of Scripture. They're not confused even if you find them confusing. These are heavy doctrines, and they are things that we should wrestle with. We ought to struggle over and cling to and plead with the Lord, give me understanding, and refuse to let go until he gives it. And so I encourage you to that this morning. Don't close your ears if you're coming and you say, wow, what a surprise. I'm in a Presbyterian church, and he's going to preach about election. Just listen in. Be confronted with God's word. Allow the word of the Lord to minister to you. So let us read God's word, Romans chapter 9, verses 18 through 23. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God... Desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we...
pray that you would hold our hearts in your hands. That, Lord, you would deal with us. That you would display to us your power and your strength and your goodness and your holiness and your justice as we consider these eternal truths. Lord, we're, we confess that these truths make us feel small. They show to us who we really are and who we really are not. And Lord, we ask that you would help us, that the preached word would have clarity, and that the Holy Spirit would take high things, things much too high for our understanding, and press these, press these wonderful truths to our hearts, that we would receive these things by faith, and that we would be ministered to by the eternal truth of your choice in election. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Almost no one sincerely struggles with God's sovereignty as Redeemer. Almost all of us delight in his power to rescue, revive, and redeem. Because day by day, week by week, we get into circumstances where we feel the truth of our powerlessness. Life presses that upon us, and ultimately, if we're honest, we go from being adults to being made small children shouting out for help to a father that is strong to save. This is the thing that delights the heart of every believer, that they didn't save themselves, but that they were saved by God. They needed help, and he heard their cry for mercy, and he gave it. Almost no one struggles with that, but when we encounter God as the sovereign judge and determiner of all things, it's much harder for us. His determinative will as creator, being a God who has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills, we struggle with that because we're being told that his will is ultimate and ours is not. If you don't struggle with that, I encourage you to just simply look into it and be honest this morning. Because if you're a finite creature like me, you struggle with it. You're not in control. You don't destine anything or anyone. He does. And no matter how hard you try, it's beyond you. But it is not beyond him. The Lord chooses. We don't. And the Apostle Paul, as he introduces us to these heavy, difficult doctrines, he's a good preacher and he's an even better shepherd. He anticipates our questions and he supplies them to us that we would ask either in criticism of God, or we would be terrified to ask in fear of an honest answer. 
And in the passage of Scripture, we have this question that gives way to a distinction so that we might see the Lord in His freedom and His eternal purposes. So that God's sovereignty and our accountability are no longer at odds. And those are our four points of the sermon this morning. Verse 19, the question. Verse 20, the distinction. Verses 20 and 21, the freedom. Verses 22 and 23, the purpose. The question, the distinction, the freedom, the purpose. And so as we come to verse 19, we encounter the question, and I want to just be honest and lay this on the very table from the outset, that this is difficult because what we are talking about is us analyzing the decisions that God made within himself in eternity. And you say, if you're sitting with us, that's really hard to get my, my mind around. Just what you just said. How do I even begin to understand it? And I'll say to you, well, maybe you're beginning to grasp the immensity of the question at hand. We are analyzing the secret, the private, the eternal delights of God within himself that he simply has not disclosed to his creatures. That's big. It's impossibly difficult. It is unlimitedly high and for me and for you it requires of us that we're brought very low to be very honest about who we are and who God is that we might simply peer into the bright shining light of his person and just for a second consider the inner workings of his mind and of his heart and again the apostle Paul he's so kind he knows who we are because he's one of us and he anticipates our struggle and he takes us by the hand and he knows that our struggle is over what he has said in verse 18, this truth of God so that he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. It's up to him and he gets to be partial however he delights to be partial. And for you and me, it's hard. God's free choice in election is hard. Because you and I are told every day of our lives that we are the ones in charge. We are responsible for the things that we do. Likewise, we're also told we're not responsible for the actions of other people. There's a division between persons. Usually, your neighbor burns down his house. You are usually not thrown in prison for arson. And that's a happy fact of life. However, in this circumstance, God is the one in control and His sovereignty. And we are being said to be subject to the will of the divine. That's it. And He knows that if you, like He, follow this biblical logic, you're going to ask the question that He gives to us in verse 19. Why then does He still find fault for who can withstand or resist his will? 
How can God hold me accountable for not doing something that he did not give me the power to do? If everything relies upon him and his work and his mercy and his dealing with my heart and my mind, and if he didn't do it, then why am I held accountable for his refusal to do this thing? Your finger is directly on the question. And some of you may sit there this morning and scoff. Some of you who've been Reformed or Presbyterian for quite a time, and you're at least somewhat comfortable with this doctrine. You sit back and you say, um, you know, that's just a question for people growing in faith. And I just want to confront you and say, friend, are you really that comfortable in the hands of this kind of mighty and powerful God? He divides heaven and hell, life and death, eternity is his to deal with. And if it doesn't, at least in a second, strike your heart that this is in God's hands and not yours, and you are ultimately just sitting there before his face, reliant upon him and him alone, with no toehold of your own. Check your pulse. Spiritually open your eyes. As a child of God, you should fear Him. And this is not the least place where that fear should be lodged. How can God condemn if there was never any ability? That's the question. How can God require something of me if I've never had the ability? This is the quip of the ancient Pelagians. When we would consider heretics regarding biblical doctrine. How could God require something of me that I can't do? He won't do that. God gives me free will. It's all on me. It's all determinative by my will, not His. And there's an inversion in that picture. It does what? It takes God off the throne of power and it places us securely in charge of history, destiny, and salvation. If it relies on you and not Him, you wear the crown of divinity rather than the God of heaven. And again, going back to verse 18, it's this context where the Apostle Paul is making a distinction between those who are spiritual Israel, those who have received the promise, those who have been chosen by God, and then those who haven't. And there is a distinction between whom? Between Moses and Pharaoh. And so the question under it all might be, if Pharaoh couldn't turn unless God changed his heart, and God didn't change his heart, how then could Pharaoh be blamed? That's the question that Paul puts before us. And I want to make that clear. You may be saying, Pastor, where, where, oh, where is my application in your first point? You like to apply things. Every time there's a point in Scripture, you try to put it to the heart. Well, I'll say this. This is the point for you and for me to deal with. You and I are not in control of all things. God is. He's in control. He's sovereign. And we are his subjects. He may do the things that he delights to do. And it needs to be in our minds as if it were printed on our foreheads and down deep in our hearts so that we can know to whom to run whenever we are powerless in the reality of who we are 
to find the one who is powerful and the eternal truth of who he is. Paul begins to answer the question that he poses to us in verse 20. And his answer has parts. So I just want to say this is the first portion. And Paul makes the distinction. And it may be the greatest distinction that can be made in all of eternity. And it's the distinction simply of creator and creature. Look at verse 20 with me. Paul answers, but who are you? Oh man, to answer back to God. But who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? And you may read that or hear me reading that to you and you think, well, that's very harsh. That's something like a child being in the household and mom and dad say, no, I'm sorry, vacation will not be at Disney World this summer. And the kid says, Dad, that's not fair. And Daddy says, I don't care. That's just what is. And you think that's harsh. There's no explanation to sit with the child and to open the family account and to simply say the dollars and the cents don't permit for us to go and to spend. Or maybe even, son, this is a poor expenditure and it would be better that we use our money for the support of various things, whether it is the care of the needy or the establishment of churches and church plants and the support of missionaries. It's not like that at all. It's just a clear, a straight, and honest, and authoritative answer. And you might say that's harsh, but I don't think it is. Because when the Apostle Paul is saying this, he's not trying to close our mouths. Rather, he is trying to establish this distinction. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? And Paul's point is this. We're not equals with the Lord. And I'll just say it's a staggering fact that that even has to be said. You're not equal to your creator. You're not God. You're not divine. You did not, with the word of power, cause all things to come into being. You didn't speak and light was then therefore created. You didn't speak and call forth the water and the firmament and separate them by the word of your power. You didn't speak and cause anything to be that is, but he did. That's plain. That's honest. And let me just simply say all of you should be very at home with this fact if you've ever gone through a drive through here. Especially you Americans. You attempt to order your food, and you request, with no tomatoes, and yet, by the word of your power, you still have a sandwich filled with tomatoes. Your word has no power like his word. You are not God like him. You haven't power like he does. There is a distinction. The creator, the creature. The finite the infinite, we are not his equals. And some of you may sit and you say, but pastor, I know my Bible, and I've studied Genesis, and I've heard your teaching, and you've told me, as you've read the Bible, that we are made in his image and after his likeness, and that the Lord looked down upon us, and he said that we were 
very good in his review. Being an image bearer does not equate with being an equal to your creator. It just means he left his fingerprints upon you when he formed you from the dust of the earth. There's a distinction, I think, that's best understood between creator and creature if we consider his attributes. Almost none of you will deny this. When we talk about God and his attributes, the things that he is, okay, when we look onto him, we divide them into two categories. One of them is incommunicable attributes. And if someone were to ask you simply, what is God like? You're probably going to say things like this. He's infinite. He's eternal. He's omnipotent and omnipresent and omniscient. He knows all things and can do all things and bears up all power. He knows no time. He hasn't a beginning. He hasn't an ending. And he is a God that fills all things. He is in all things and in all places. Whenever you put it like that and simply ask someone, is that who you are? It's a very simple answer. Of course not. I'm not like that. Those are not my attributes. But then there are communicable attributes. The second category when we talk about the attributes of God, His holiness, His justice, His goodness, His truth, the things that He places upon His creatures for our living and for our worship. He's taught us the things that delight his heart and how we may be people that live after him. Because after all, he doesn't only call us to be image bearers, but to be a people sanctified. Who look like Jesus, talk like Jesus, walk like Jesus. If we're going to do that, we're going to bear up the things that are his communicable attributes that we ought to be as we show forth his fingerprints on our persons. You are like God. You are not equal to God. And there is an order. And then there is a perspective. If God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, if he is omnipotent and omniscient, he has perspective that you and I just simply don't. He has perspective, not just from the mountaintop, but well beyond. He has perspective that can see over all things and through all time, both in history past and the future. And he sees, he sees all things that are good. He sees all things that he intends. And he knows what will happen second by second. And he is upholding and directing and sustaining everything all the time. So what is the point that Paul is making? Is he telling us, oh, just shut up? Sit in the back seat, kid. We're not where we're going, but we'll get there eventually and you'll just like it because I'm dad and I'm driving the car. That's not what he's saying. He's making the point that you and I, whenever we peer into the eternal, determinative will of God, as he decides the things that will come to pass and who it is that he will save, there are some things that are so far beyond our understanding. They're kept from us, veiled in His holiness, kept from the sight of angels. 
thinks even that the Son did not admit to knowing. And yet who are we to ask the question for which we may not behold? That's Paul's answer. We need to simply get comfortable with not knowing some things because we couldn't behold them even if they were right in front of our noses. The distinction. Verses 20 and 21, the freedom. As you go into verses 20 and 21, the latter part of verse 20 at least, Paul enters into a second part of his answer. And he makes use of a common Old Testament theme, and that is of the potter and the clay. And if you're an Old Testament reader, and I trust that you all are, you'll know that you can go, flip in your Bible, to Isaiah 29, Isaiah 45 and 64, or Jeremiah 18. You'll put your finger on it and you can read where the Bible speaks with this language again and again. This isn't unique to the Apostle Paul. Again, he knows that he's writing partly to Jewish believers. and He is confronting their Jewishness with their awareness of Scripture. And he builds off this distinction of the Creator and the creature. And he takes the Lord who has made all things and has made us and puts him into this wonderful form of a potter. Someone who takes clay and forms for himself, whether it's a pot or a cup or a plate or a bowl, it's his design and he does it freely according to what he delights to use it for. Because let me simply say this, the best potters at least have a sense of what they want to use this thing for whenever they begin to, to make it. The potter sits down, he knows. There's a lady in town who's commissioned a piece and she wants to cook a casserole. She needs a casserole dish. And she says to him, this is what I would like you to make. So as he's at the potter's wheel, he takes the appropriate amount of clay, puts it down upon the wheel, and begins with purpose to form it for its ultimate goal and use. And this is a depiction that Paul uses to be helpful to us so we can see and understand the circumstance of what we're talking about. He asks us, Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? And the Apostle Paul is there putting his finger on the issue and simply say this, If you struggle with the sovereignty of God as he makes all persons and even ordains who will and who will not be redeemed, do you really think that those who are not redeemed, those who do not come into faith with him, sit and look at the Lord and beat their chest and say, Lord, I want to believe in you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, yet you're stopping me. a casserole dish looking up and saying I really don't want to be a casserole dish I'd much rather be a teacup it's a silly proposition and it's something that I'll just simply say as a pastor I don't think I've ever run into but also I'll, I'm very aware I don't have the perspective to run into this in this format and in this frame he goes on and he pursues and he asks the question has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable and another for dishonorable use? 
This is the question of the creative freedom of God. Can God do with us whatever he wants? And the answer is rhetorically yes. He's free. He's just as free as that potter sitting there with the mind and purpose that he has for what he's doing to take about the task to form for himself something of use. He's free to do with us what he wills because we are his creatures. Likewise, if he fires the pot and it is not up to the amount and the use that he would have it to be, he may smash it against the wall and start again. It's his freedom. Some have called it his divine prerogative. He's free to do what he wills. He's free to choose how he wills. It's in his mind, his heart. It's according to his person. His delights, not ours. And you may say, but pastor, I really struggle with this. This is terrifying freedom. This is freedom that makes me tremble to my very core. And you may also say, but pastor, people that hold that kind of thing, they're sitting in judgment and they're looking on me and they're looking on my family and my friends and they're saying simply, well, that's a reprobate. That's someone who's not elect. That's someone who can't possibly be loved by the Lord. Friend, if anyone is saying that to you, they ought to be condemned in themselves. We don't have that perspective. I can't say to you anything regarding your election. It is hidden in the eternal will and the counsel of the divine. I can look at fruits. I can see things that you do, the things you say, the things you have done. I may make guesses even though I shouldn't. I can say there are evidences of redemption or not. But I can't speak one second to the plan of God for you until the very last time you breathe. And even then, he's the one that searches hearts. Not me and not any Christian and not any person. And you despair in yourself and you say, I don't know if I'm elect. And you struggle with it. And your assurance is cast down and you wonder and you wonder and you wonder. And I just simply want to push you to this. If it's not dependent upon you, in this circumstance, it is dependent upon God. Who would you rather trust the hand of an almighty creator who has pledged his love to sinners and gave his son for their redemption or yourself and your own understanding? I want to lay in his hands like a newborn baby and experience the security of his love. These are things withheld from us. That's why the Apostle Paul doesn't just line it out. He doesn't tell you, yes, this one is saved. No, that one's not saved. He doesn't execute the hand of sovereign justice. No, no, he's no judge. That's the Lord of heaven. It's his deal, his work, his mind. His will, His choice, not ours. I think I can feel some security in Him. Because He has freely offered to me salvation in His Son. I don't have to ask the question of His determinative, decretal will. I can simply receive with faith the person of my Redeemer and my Messiah and Jesus Christ, the 
that the Bible time and time again shouts to me, turn to him and be saved. Believe on Christ and be redeemed. You may say, but pastor, what's all the point of this? Why don't we even talk about this doctrine? I believe it's for the assurance of those who are saved. Who actually have had faith in Christ. To simply know that their salvation didn't begin with themselves, nor will it be finished under their power. So that we can simply rest in his arms and know what security actually is. The Apostle Paul goes on in verse 22 and 23 and he gives us the purpose. Why would God do any of this? And Paul says he has a purpose and he speaks in some sense from God's experience with unbelievers and with people who will never come to faith. The Apostle Paul says that the Lord, in verse 22, endures the assaults, the insults, the rebellion of the unbelieving heart. He endures this with much patience. And you have to at least be somewhat honest with this and ask the question, if we do have a God like what you're talking about, He is all-powerful and He is sovereign, and He can make those sort of choices, and He does make them, and He is just, then why doesn't God just take to throwing all of the dishes at the wall? Because the Word of God tells us that we've all fallen away and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned in thought, word, and deed, and that we're even born in sinful frames and as sinners. Doesn't just blow the world up and begin again. Because he's pleased to endure with patience. The amazing thing is not that God doesn't save all people, but rather that he saves anybody. And it is amazing that he would endure and be patient with people that rebel against him. That ought to astound you. That ought to be one of the things that you leave this verse of scripture and you say, Oh Lord, how can this be? This is amazing grace. How could you even endure with that person, that one that will never come to you to have a house over his head, to have food on his table and drink in his cup and clothes on his back, and to be blessed with every worldly blessing in this life and even hear the gospel so that he could then deny it? How, how, Lord, how could you endure that? How could you be patient with someone who hates you? Verse 23, Paul gives us some assessment of the answer. He doesn't snuff out. He doesn't destroy utterly and immediately. Why? So that his wrath is displayed. So that his power is shown. And so that those vessels of mercy, those that are being saved when they don't deserve it, may know the riches of his glory. Do you understand what's being said here? Why does God endure these things? Why has God not crushed all of these things and destroyed all of this rebellion? It's so that those who have received his son and who have freely been redeemed by his grace may know what his wrath is because they will never bear it. 
So you can say, I've been rescued from that and I deserved it, but he didn't give it to me. To see his power and say, he could do anything with me, but his grace is amazing and I haven't received what I've deserved. Oh, the riches of kindness shown to us in Christ Jesus, in whom we've been seated in the heavenly places, that we can look and know how much he loves us. Paul says that's his purpose. So that you can have an at least minimally adequate understanding of how merciful and loving God has been to you. And that's where Paul leaves us in the answer. All of these things are for what purpose? So that those who love Jesus and have been redeemed by Him might know the fullness of who their God is and all of His attributes and His justice and power and wrath and love and mercy and grace so that they might rejoice in the Savior given to all of us in Christ Jesus. You're sitting here with us this morning and some of you say, well, how can I be one of those persons? I definitely don't want to be like Pharaoh. I don't want to be hardened. I don't want the Lord to harden me. I, I don't want to be a vessel prepared for wrath and destruction. I want to be a vessel prepared for mercy. How can I get that, Pastor? You told me it depends upon the will of God. It doesn't depend upon my will. Well, I want to simply say this. God gave to you His Son as a Redeemer and has called you to put your faith in Him. Jesus took the punishment you deserve and invites you simply to have faith in Him for salvation. And I'll say to you, would you put your faith in Him? Will you cling to Him? Will you hide in Him? Will you fear this kind of God and run to his son, this kind of savior, and be saved? It's as simple as that. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to be a person complete in repentance, but to simply turn from sin and unto Jesus Christ in faith. You say, but I'm weak and my faith is wavering. That doesn't matter at all. Christ is able to save even the weakest. And I call you to that this morning. And for those of you who know Christ, praise God alongside me. This is the redemption that we enjoy. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the grace that you give with unlimited abundance. But Lord, as we've taken 45 minutes to peer into the sun, that, Lord, you would take these truths and make them clear to our hearts. Father, minister to us through them. Lord, may they not just be theoretical propositions, but rather personal witnesses. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.